Charlie Pacello, and I just want to thank you all for joining me today, this Friday, March 9th. It's such a beautiful day out here in Colorado. And I just want to make a quick shout out, a huge shout out to the host, or excuse me, to the sponsors of this show, the council, Remax Alliance. If you want to sell your home or you want to buy your home here in Colorado, uh, also I think uh, outside of Colorado as well, in Oregon, Go to Remax Alliance. They are the best. They're the best in the co in the states. Uh, I know these people personally. They will help you to buy your home. They will help you to find your dream home. And go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. And I know these guys personally. They're awesome. They will treat you uh, like kings and queens there. So, if you need a house, go to Remax Alliance. I uh, also want to thank KUHS Denver for uh, hosting this show and allowing me to be able to broadcast uh, not only here in this state, but uh, all over the nation and the world. Uh, we're touching lives all around the world. And KUHS Denver is uh, the best, the preeminent radio station, Internet TV uh, in Colorado. And we are touching lives all over the world through music, through programs. And I just want to thank KUHS Denver for allowing me to broadcast to you and to share these stories and these uh, guests that I've been bringing on and uh, just really, really appreciate it. Uh, we have people coming in from the United Kingdom, Turkey, Canada, Germany, the United States and San Diego, the United Kingdom, Italy, Peru. I uh, just want to thank all of you for tuning in to the council today. Well, it's been an interesting uh, couple weeks uh, and just wanted to share uh, that I uh, had an uncle who passed away recently and uh, it was one of the most important men, that uh, most influ influential men in a part of my life and uh, he was taken by cancer and uh, it came very suddenly and uh, it was uh, a very period of mourning for, uh, for the whole family and uh, he was a really important figure. He really understood how to uh, it was all about family. He was all about taking care of his family and uh, his his nephews and nieces. He attended all of their events and birthdays. He was always showed up, and uh, he was gave us uh, a great example of of uh, being a man. And uh, we we lost a dear loved one this past week, and it was um, just really difficult for a lot of us. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to honor him and. Uh, in his passing, you know, when we, we're confronted with death, we're confronted with our own mortality. And we're confronted with the fact that uh, the time has passed uh, when we could have shared with that person. And um, we've got to really take a step back and understand that, you know, all the quarrels and all the fights and all the arguments that people have with one another. And it's in the, in the big scheme of things, when they're gone, you, you can't you can't make amends at that point. You can't uh, repair relationships. You can't do anything like that. And so it's really, really important to, to make those steps when you can and try to reach out to people and, 
and, and heal those wounds because when they're gone, you don't get that opportunity to do it. And uh, one of the things that uh, was was told in his in his uh, uh, at the in the eulogy uh, for him on the funeral, uh, and it was uh, really I think it really hit the point that when when everybody else gets up from the table, you know, all the people that pass in and out of your life. And they come and they go and they, sh- they share certain moments and certain experiences. And uh, the ones that are still sitting at your table is your family. And uh, he was an incredible man. And I'd like to read a quick poem before we get on to today's show uh, in honor of him. And it's called, Do Not Stand at My Grave. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am the thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints in snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circling flight. I am the soft starshine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. What a beautiful poem. It was given to me by a very dear friend uh, who helped while, uh, while we were going through this morning phase. Okay, so we are moving forward on that uh, point, and I think uh, this show is going to be very appropriate for how we're able to transcend some of our limitations and some of our um, fears, uh, you know, the suffering. Life is suffering. Life is dukkha. Uh, is it... Many of these spiritual sages and philosophers during this time that we're going to be talking about were examining. And how do we overcome our fear of death? How do we overcome our fear of suffering and the suffering that we go through and the pain that we go through? And uh, this book here is my inspiration. It's by Karen Armstrong. It's called, obviously, The Great Transformation. It's the beginning of our religious traditions. And Karen uh, looked at it from a – she was a nun – and she looked at all these different religions and their, or, their origins. And she examined this period of time that was called the Axial Age. And this was so fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating to me. And it examined how these four different regions were influenced. There was, it was like there was something in the air. There was something moving in the air at this time. And it, it lasted from about... 900 BCE to about uh, 200 BCE. And it, it really was like there was all this violence in the world. There was all this turmoil, uh, this major upheaval in these four different regions. The one region was China, where Confucianism and Taoism uh, developed. Uh, in India, where Hinduism and um, Buddhism came about. In the is, uh, Middle East in Israel, where the tribes are going from a polytheistic to a monotheism and the influence there, and uh, in Greece. And Greece was where we end up getting the philosophical rationalism and uh, the effects of tragedy and how tragedy could help us to achieve catharsis. And so all of this was happening all at once without having any contact with one another. And there was a spiritual and philosophical revolution and evolution. I mean, all four regions were plagued by this violence, and yet they were coming up with the same ideas. They were coming up with these similar themes that were to help people to get out of their suffering. And they would discover that 
in actuality, suffering was a prerequisite to enlightenment. And so they didn't avoid the suffering. They looked at it as a gateway, as a pathway, as an initiation into something deeper and greater than they would had ever experienced before. It's this book here by Karen is just a magnificent uh, achievement in elucidating the historical, cultural, societal, anthropological, and religious movements uh, that led to the religions that we have today. So it drove these people from, an, uh, um, from a world that was plagued by violence, war, and trauma to a time, and they were looking for an ethos of love, compassion, and doing unto others what we would want done to us. So, we're going to start out with Greece. I'm going to try to bring in some of these great sages from all these different regions so you get a little touch, a little taste of what these people were talking about, and maybe you can incorporate that into your own lives as well. In Greece, they would experience their axial age, not so much in its religious context, because they, they really held on to their Greek gods and goddesses, and that was well into the, to the first century of the Common Era. But theirs is going to be more of a political, scientific, and philosophical transformation. Now, the, most, the greatest, wisest, most renowned philosopher that we know of from that time was Socrates. Socrates was a stonecutter. And he was a, this really kind of ugly man. He had this paunch nose, snub nose up here, these protruding lips. And Socrates would walk around Athens uh, talking with anybody who was interested in him uh, and, and better understanding themselves. And he believed that this was his mission. And he didn't charge, Socrates didn't charge any money for his services. And yet he always found these people around him, these disciples that just adored him and loved him because he was so unique. And his purpose was not to impart information, but to deconstruct people's preconceptions and make them realize that, in fact, they knew nothing at all. He engaged in what was called dialectic dialogue. And Socrates, this method of exposing false beliefs and truths uh, in order to uh, elicit truth was an I mean, exhausting affair. People would get upset and angry at him and throw things at him. And, and he, he got them to realize that they really didn't know very much. They actually didn't know these things. And he had an uncanny ability to be able to move his students through this questioning and answering of a particular idea and analyzing and looking and discovering its flaws in inconsistencies in order to understand themselves better. And those deeper meanings of things, those that he would engage them with, he, they, these people would understand that they, had a, that they had a creative profundity of ignorance. That in actuality, we don't really know those things that we know. And that's what he would walk around saying, I really don't know anything. And for Socrates, there was nothing greater for a human being than to work on his soul. By asking a lot of those deep questions about life, if we were lucky, we might find some profound truth that would affect how we would behave in the world. And we could only achieve that if we were willing to interrogate our assumptions. So Socrates' philosophy was a lot different than some of his contemporaries because some of the philosophies were dealing with conceptual and abstract theories, and his was more about how to live well. And when we start understanding about courage, justice, prudence, and temperance, 
and friendship, what that meant to us, what that really meant to us, we'd start to embody that understanding in our lives and we'd, we'd make that into a reality. And if we didn't understand these virtues or we lacked depth or we were just saying words and didn't follow it with actions, because if we're not in alignment, if our thoughts and our words are not in alignment with our actions and our deeds, then we're, we're obviously we're out of alignment and we're not being truthful and we're not being authentic. And we would live these very superficial lives and we'd be at the mercy of all these, of our baser instincts. So a clear comprehension of these values of the soul could direct our energies and efforts towards this highest good. And that was how we cultivated the best in us. That's how we'd cultivate what was supreme benefit to our souls. And Socrates took pride in knowing that he knew nothing. <laughs> and that was humankind's failure to examine themselves and their ideas and their beliefs and their assumptions that caused so much suffering. And if we could just recognize our own ignorance, we'd be able to arrive at new intimations that would learn us and teach us how to live better and behave better in our lives and how to treat people better. If we failed to do this, if we did not examine ourselves, then we would live these empty, empty, shallow lives. As Socrates says, the life that is unexamined is not worth living. So when we fail to think deeply about these kinds of things, the meanings of our soul, and the, the things about our soul, about goodness and honor and virtue and faithfulness and, and love, we betrayed our soul, or psyche, as the Greeks called it. That's what soul is translated to in, in the Greeks. And so the cultivation of the soul to Socrates was the most important human task, far more important than any kind of achievement that you might have in worldly success. And our soul, to the Greeks, was the seat of our conscience. I mean, and, and that's where it gave us a sense of right and wrong, of ethics and moral responsibility. And how he described it, he described it as a little voice in his head, in the back of his head, that would say, don't do this, don't do this. <laughs> you might hurt somebody. And if you didn't listen and you did that, uh, you would be betraying yourself. The qualities of the soul were strengthened by choosing good actions and weakened by doing bad. And Socrates insisted that the only path to happiness was not to retaliate or render evil for evil, because that only hurt our own soul. We must do all that we could to restrain ourselves, and that's sometimes really hard, but we must do all we can to restrain ourselves so that no matter what was done or how much we suffered, our souls would be intact. And so this was the Greek idea of the golden rule. And this golden rule, you're going to see as we, as we go through the show, comes back again and again in both, all these four regions without having any of them having any contact. The other things the Greeks brought was Greek tragedy and the purpose of catharsis. Now, tragedy is one of the great contributions that the Greeks gave us. And uh, they, Aristotle, thought that tragedy should be a centerpiece of education in democracy because it served a necessary function to keep the people and the city or society very healthy. Because he believed that tragedy helped educate, educate people about their emotions, how to appropriately handle them. And by evoking this pity and fear on the stage, the audience would be able to purge their own toxic feelings and emotions. So that, 
The stage would be a ritual reenactment of the story where the sufferings of the tragic character would unfold before the audience and which would induce, in the end, these feelings of compassion. Feelings of empathy are necessary to create the possibility for harmony between peoples and different factions within the community, within a society, within a family, with, between lovers. Tragedy has the power to transform our deepest fears into something pure, transcendent, and pleasurable. And it was a means of draining the society through a process called catharsis, which means a cleansing. It's a deep purification of the soul awakened through the emotional body by grief. And a catharsis allowed the potentially dangerous and toxic emotions to be released, refined, and purified in both the individual and in the society. Now, the Greeks, Greeks emerged from a dark age between about four, like around 900 BC. It was, uh, there was a lot of confusion between about 1200 BC to about 900 BC. And that was due to the fall of the Egyptian Empire and the Hittite kingdoms. There was, for whatever reason, those, those empires fell, and so there was this vacuum. And there was a period of a dark age that a lot of these cultures experienced. And because of that, they would develop that darkness. The Greeks developed a civilization of incomparable brilliance, which we are the benefits of today. And this was the birthplace, the roots, the center of Western, it was a cradle of Western civilization. Philosophy, law, democracy, art, architecture, theater, are just a few of the contributions that came from the Greeks. And despite these enormous achievements, which we are the beneficiaries of, they never lost sight uh, to the tragedies that life brought to a human being, that plagued every human being. They understood that life sometimes required one to suffer, that pain and suffering were inextricably linked to this life, and therefore we must learn how to survive, endure, and get through. You know, they experienced the sacred in catastrophe, and when the boundaries that kept society and individuals were sane or were torn asunder, Wars, violence, and other natural deeds brought, a, brought this, this, these disasters. And if we didn't purge this from ourselves, if we didn't cleanse it, our families would be contaminated by this pollution until it was eliminated. And the Greeks called this contagion, this contagious power, a miasma. And they believed it was a very independent and it had this life of its own. And it was like this, they identified it, they personified it in this dark, chthonic power as the Irenes. Uh, or the, uh, if you're looking at Roman mythology, the Furies. And they were these like frightening harpies, you know, and they would assail and torment and follow a pursuer or a wrongdoer, and they would haunt him all the time. And if the wrongdoer remained unpunished or did not make amends and atone for his or her errors, this miasma would affect and contaminate the entire family with more sorrows, traumas, and catastrophe. And this inevitably would get passed down the generations until the miasma unleashed had been burst. So the Greeks understood that it wasn't possible to experience the fullness of life's ecstasy without experiencing also its loss. And tragedy helped to bring this understanding to the ritual of theater, where people gathered in ceremony. This was a, a sacred ritual and confront their fears and their terrors and experience this catharsis. And the purging of all that was contaminating their souls. And they learned that through the suffering, 
that they experienced that it was possible to come out safely onto the other side. Now, tragedy came out of the myth of Dionysus, the mysteries of Dionysus. Uh, he was a suffering god. He was a, a very similar to, uh, you know, uh, Christ Jesus and others uh, that had this uh, Osiris that uh, they get dismembered, go down into the underworld, go down into hell, and then are reborn. They come back and they re renew life. And so Dionysus was this, but he was also the god of wine and the god of the theater. And the citizens would come to this sacred precinct. It was, a, it was, a, it was like going to, to a church and, or a synagogue or something, and they would go there. And they would see, hear the choruses singing, and then they would watch the theatrical perf performance. And when theater, actually by Aeschylus, Aeschylus was the great, one of the great poets, one of the great tragedians, when he launched theater, and it was like the big bang of theater, when he actually had one of the members of the chorus stand out and step out onto the stage and start speaking and, and, and becoming an individualized character, an archetypal character, uh, that was the big bang of theater. That launched it all. The Persians is the name of the play. And we get caught up in that full-scale drama of the Greek tragedy and the tra tra tragic plots and the characters, the flawed characters and the heroic struggles that they try to overcome. And it was a treasured institution, and, and it served as a communal meditation, uh, during which time the audiences came to watch and weep. And the Greeks firmly believed that the sharing of grief and tears could, was created a valuable bond between people. And that sworn enemies could discover their common humanity. Tears were not the power, had the power to clear out that grief of, and this poisonous hatred. And they also helped us to understand that we're not alone in our sufferings, that uh, all mortals suffer. And that there was a way, this was a, a way to bridge our differences, to find common ground, and to lay the groundwork for harmony, justice, and peace. This was catharsis. This was their huge contribution. A catharsis was achieved by the experience of sympathy and compassion because the ability, and this is the key, the ability to feel with the other was crucial to the tragic experience. So what do the Greeks give us? When, when we can embrace our sufferings, we give ourselves permission to grieve over the tragedies that have happened in our lives and in the lives of others. The cathartic experience of the emotional, psychological, physical, and spiritual purification keeps our hearts alive. And, it's the, and I'm going to leave you with this as we, we leave the Greeks here of a quote by the Greek playwright Aeschylus and talking about how this purification, this grief can help us to learn. And he writes, He who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart and in our own despair against our will comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. Woo! That is powerful. Now, this is what was going on with the uh, happening during this time in the, the area of Greece. This philosophical rationalism, this movement towards tragedy, the development of Western civilization, the roots, the foundations. In the Middle East, in uh, the area of Israel, the Axial Age was a, li was a little bit different. And these were the foundations. What happened at this time between 900 BCE and 200 BCE laid the foundations for the religious traditions that are really present in our world today with uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 
And it was – they experienced – now, the Israelites came up uh, after they, they – they were found in the highlands of Canaan. Uh, and it was after the, the dis mysterious disintegration of the Egyptian and Hittite kingdoms. And there was all these little small settlements that they were established in, in the highlands from the lower Galilee until into in the north to Beersheba in the south. And the story of Israel's origins become the organizing symbol for which the actual vision of monotheism would break through. And we're going to look at the prophet Ezekiel here in just a moment. And But I want to give you some some context to what was going on and how their axial age moved this region. Now the Bible, the Bible is actually a product of their axial age and it took several centuries for it to be written and finalized in the version we know today. The definitive narrative of that saga has changed, embroidered, been reinterpreted and added to many times over. And the patriarchs of the religion were Abraham, were Moses, Joshua and David. And one of the most important influential stories is the liberation from Egypt. The God of, of Israel, Yahweh, was taking pity on his people and being uh, who had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And he freed them under the leadership of Moses. And they crossed the Red Sea. He drowned the Egyptian army and made a covenant on Mount Sinai and gave them the Ten Commandments. Now, life was extremely difficult in the highlands. I mean, it was, very, it, was, it was very warlike. It was a lot of trauma and upheaval. And so these tribes needed to develop an identity to unite the whole tribes. And so this, they began a unique relationship with the god Yahweh. And Yahweh was a warrior god. And he gave strength and courage to a people that were beleaguered by a lot of violence and, and war on of all fronts. What's interesting is that he was one of many gods that the people worshipped in that area. Yahweh was among the sons of El. He was the high god of Canaan. And even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had worshipped El. Now other gods than Yahweh had, had to compete with were like the gods uh, Baal. Marduk was another one. Malak was another one. And these were, these were all warrior gods for all these different competing tribes, and their stories were very mythic and filled with wars that convulsed the cosmos and shattered the earth. And the, it was replicating the violent, dangerous life of the peoples in these territories, and they needed the support of these warrior gods. See, war was a sanctified activity in this region. People would prepare for battle, in, it was like a religious experience. It was, it was almost as if they were going to purify themselves. They would purify themselves in the same kind of devotion that they would any of their other sacred rites. The battlefield was considered a holy ground, and the gods would be leading and fighting alongside the people. So the Israelites were, had worshipped many other gods before, uh, besides Yahweh, and that was very typical in those areas, and you could see it even in in Greece, uh, where they had many gods that represented the home and the hearth and uh, fertility and uh, uh, music. And so they had the same thing. And it wasn't until the prophet Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is my God, that someone ins insisted on, a, a, on the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Now, this was a major breakthrough for their axial age, and it didn't come easily because the people didn't really want to let go of their, some of them were beloved gods and goddesses that they had. And as Yahweh was becoming more peaceful, 
they were afraid that Yahweh couldn't, couldn't take care of them. And so it was a big transition to move from the polytheism to the monotheism. Now, the Axial Age religion would be conditioned uh, by a sympathy that enabled people to feel with others. This is really critical, and this is, this is on, all, on all these four regions. And this concept of empathy for others, along with the idea of spiritual self-surrender, uh, was often preceded by suffering. And the history of the Israelites was loaded with suffering, violence, and trauma. And so this evolution to monotheism would take the people, the prophets, and kings through some very dark times. And in the 6th century BC, uh, this, the faith of the Israelites would be tested by God. Uh, the catalyst for the change was, again, unrestrained violence and war. The Babylonian king, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar uh, invaded the kingdom of Judea subjugated the region, and exiled thousands of people to Babylon. And the suffering that the Israelites experienced was intense. I mean, Jerusalem was in ruins. The destruction was in misery. Uh, here's a quote from the book. People clawed at garbage dumps for food. Mothers killed and boiled their babies. And handsome young men roamed the ruined streets with blackened faces and skeletal bodies. I mean, the people of Israel had lost everything. I mean, they were humiliated. They were filled with despair. They stood collectively on the edge of a cliff and stared at the great terrifying abyss. Yahweh had been worsted by the god of Babylon, Marduk. And the people lost hope. And many were seeking answers and turning within to find an explanation why, why God had abandoned them. And this turned to the interior seeing things exactly as they were and taking individual responsibility for their erroneous ways would create a new, deeper, and more personal understanding and relationship with the God of Israel. And the, one of the principal players was the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a young priest, and he was deported to Babylon in 597 B.C. And he had these successful... Had a, a succession of powerful visions that led him to understand that the agony of his suffering would lead him into a more peaceful inner spirituality. And just five years into his exile, Ezekiel had a vision where he saw the look of, of Yahweh, of God, coming down, sitting on his throne in a war chariot, holding on to a scroll which had all the lamentations of his people. And Ezekiel was forced to eat it and painfully assimilating all the violence and sorrow of his times. And this didn't make sense. I mean, it was beyond comprehension. Why would God want him to, to swallow all the sorrows of his people? Yet when Ezekiel ate the scroll and allowed himself to fully experience the full weight of the grief and the sorrow and the pain, he found it tasted as sweet as honey. Now, Ezekiel believed that it was because of the Judeans' idolatry, immorality, and wickedness that led to what happened to them. Uh, the enemy was only doing God's will. Yahweh had left them, and he would bring no comfort, but would remain with them until they repented. And this becomes very part of the Judeo-Christian and, and Muslim traditions, that idea of needing to repent. They must rid themselves of all delusions, reform from within, and be brutally honest with their own failings. Instead of blaming somebody else, instead of blaming somebody else for their cruelty and projecting the pain onto the enemy, Ezekiel was forcing the Israelites to look within, 
to, to, to the, and to look closer at home. He was wanted them to examine their own sinfulness and where they had gone astray. Now, I want to remind everyone that sin, and this may be news, uh, sin is actually an archery term. It means you've missed the mark. So when you've missed the mark, you just got to re-aim. And when we repent our sins, our errors, it's recognizing that we haven't been following the guidance from our hearts. And we violated that law in our souls that knows what's to do, what's the right thing to do, what's not the wrong thing to do, and feel that deep sorrow for the actions that we've taken. And suffering occurred in this context as a consequence of these iniquitous actions and behaviors of the Israelites. And so Ezekiel was imploring his fellow exiles to take responsibility for their own actions and with a full heart experience the totality of their sorrow. Only then would that help them to realign with the ways of spirit, with the realize of God, of source. So after exile and full repentance, Yahweh was going to bring them back home. And in another vision of the Valley of the Bones, Ezekiel watched as Yahweh breathed life back into the bones lying in the desert. And these bones represented the exiled community. And this is what Ezekiel wrote, A new heart will also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. So the restoration of the exiles of Jerusalem would happen because Ezekiel and others had assimilated their pain, acknowledged their own responsibility, and allowed their hearts to break. And that would allow God to come through and they would become more humane. Lastly, and this is important as we go into the next group, is the following the destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel, near the end of his life, had another one, had another vision. And he had a vision called Yahweh Sham, which means Yahweh is there. And the city was on a high mountain, and it was the center. It was, it was a, the commonwealth, the temple, and all these beautiful rivers and streams came around it. And, and God had returned, according to the prophet. And the rivers were bubbling up and flowing. The, the fields were fertile and abundant. And the temple was the nucleus of the whole world, this divine power that radiated to the land and people of Israel in a series of concentric circles. And despite the fact that Jerusalem was actually in ruins at the time, the holy city within still lived and was never out of reach. So what Ezekiel had done, it had made the temple an internal reality, similar to what they were doing in India with the mandalas. It was a symbol of meditation, an image of the properly ordered life centered on the divine. So it is very likely that when Ezekiel and his disciples were meditating on the holy city within, a replication of the temple that had once stood, they were orienting themselves to their larger self. And some were probably discovering a divine presence at the core of their being. So while this was happening in the actual age for the, in the Israelites, moving towards monotheism, and this turning within and repentance. In China, China was having a completely different experience. And we're going to look at Lao Tzu. 
But first, let me kind of give you some historical and cultural uh, understanding of China's axial age. They, they did it independent of other regions. Uh, China is very isolated by mountains and swampy, uninhabitable lands, and the climate was very harsh. It was broiling summers and icy winters, and the Yellow River was often plagued or, or uh, prone to flooding. And so the earliest settlers of that Great Plain date back to the third millennium B.C., and the feudal kings who ruled that period tamed the countryside and made it inhabitable. They built dikes, they drained the swamps, they let, moved the rivers toward the sea, and they developed agriculture. And these sage kings uh, who wrestled power from nature and the universal order and established their kingdoms uh, made the countryside habitable. And this would serve as an inspiration to the philosophers of this axial age. Now, the history of China is replete with the rise and fall of numerous dynasties. And if heaven made a particular ruler or favored a particular ruler, his dynasty would rise as a consequence of the mandate of heaven. And this concept was first introduced by the Duke of Zhao, which is right around 11th century BC. And he was searching for a solution to why the people of China should follow the new king after the Zhao had seized power from the former Shang dynasty. To be king, one had to receive the blessings of Di, the high god, and that dynasties lost their mandate They would, uh, because they had oppressed their subjects, and so they needed the blessing. They had lost the way, and the people were suffering as a consequence. So justice needed to be reestablished, and the Zhao, because of their virtuous ruler, had been consecrated as the rightful king. A king would lose his right to rule if he was cruel and merciless. But if the ruler was wise, humane, and truly concerned for the welfare of his subjects, people would flock to him from all over the world. And heaven would raise him to the highest position. Now this idea of the mandate of heaven would become a central ideal for the philosophers in this axial age. And in order to preserve the way, the Tao of heaven, the Chinese created elaborate rituals to sustain and ensure that the natural order of things here on earth replicated heaven. See, heaven and earth were not separated as they were in other traditions, like, the, like in Israel or the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. Rather, heaven and earth coexisted together simultaneously, complementing each other in a balanced, harmonious relationship. And humans continued and contributed to the completion of the creation that heaven had begun. And they con this continuum allowed for humans to share in the divine process. All acts were considered sacred and either supported the way or maligned it. And the king was invested with the royal mandate. And if he followed the way correctly, his kingdom would flourish. If he did not, there would be chaos, disorder, followed by decline. Now, rituals played an instrumental part in the spiritual life of the Chinese. If one followed the Li perfectly and understood the value and significance of what they were doing, why they were doing it, and performed the ritual correctly, the way of heaven would be preserved. And initially, only the kings performed these rituals. But eventually, the monarchy declined, the Zhao dynasty declined, and others were permitted to participate in this political, social, and economic landscape. The Junzi, 
the, the gentlemen, and they were a part of the arist aristocratic warrior class, became preoccupied with the Li. And they, by infusing their minds with the sacred traditions encoded in the Li, it was believed to promote self-control, moderation, reverence, and respect. And if all families and clans of China followed the Li, harmony and peace would reign. If they did not, chaos and destruction. The idea was based on a very sagacious psychological insight. When people are consistently treated with the utmost respect, they learn to feel worthy of reverence. They realize they have absolute value. Something to think about. So anyway, after the, towards the end of the 6th century BC, China was thrown into a major crisis. The region became engulfed in a lot of wars, uh, people fighting for one territory. Uh, they were uh, restrained by some of the constraints. There was uh, this greed and power and aggression, violence, materialism was destroying the sacredness and sanctity of life that had been established by the way, the way of heaven. And the cosmic balance and interdependence between heaven and earth was in jeopardy. And the lives of all the Chinese people were endangered if they could not be brought back to the way. It was under these severe conditions that China's axial age began. Now, Confucius was one of the first philosophers to begin teaching about others, towards others, about the sacred path of the way and a return to it. Now, he felt the way was accessible to anybody. You didn't have to be a Junzi or a warrior. Actually, a Junzi or warrior was really a scholar. And that everyone had the potential within him to become one. And by studying and treading the path carefully, enthusiastically, one would learn how to be good here. And transcending the limitations imposed on him by his society and his circumstances. And evolve into a profoundly mature and spiritual being. Now, in order to submit to this altruism and surrender to the ego's pettiness, cruelty, and selfishness, people needed to become fully aware of their actions. And this lesson was learned and cultivated by treating others with respect, by nourishing the holiness in others, you would naturally bring out the holiness in you. This is Confucius. Never do to others what you would not like them to do to you. The golden rule. This was the way. It was Confucius who was the first to spread the message of this singular virtue. He believed that if people behaved in this way, wars would never start or they would end. Exploitation, exploitation of the masses would end. Hatred, cruelty, and opposition would completely dissolve away. But it required a lifelong struggle to master. And if you did so, you achieved a moral power that was almost tangible. Now, one of the last Chinese philosophers who was able at this time to be, to, that influenced China's actual age, and it was long, and it's, there's too much history for me to go through to, to bridge Confucius to Lao Tzu. Um, but Lao Tzu was one of the last great sages. And he, the legend describes how Lao Tzu, which translates to old master, and when he was very old, he left China on, on a water buffalo and was headed west. And he was exceedingly disappointed and saddened by the political situation going on in the Chao province. 
and all the violence, greed, and vanity of mankind. And mankind had fallen away from its natural goodness and by the constant busyness of his U-way mind. And the U-way is the busyness, the shaping desire into action. And he was stopped along the road while he was uh, on his travels by a guard who recognized him and asked Lao Tzu to write down his teachings. And the epitome of selfless compassion for the plight of humanity, Lao Tzu relented and composed what is known to us as the Tao Te Ching. And it's an ancient text that has lasted for over 2,500 years, and it comes even, goes even farther back to the times of those sage kings. And it was an interior, helped what person find an interior reflection on one's own spirituality. And the Tao Te Ching translates as the classic of the way and its potency. The Tao Te Ching begins with these lines. The Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. Now it consists of 81 chapters written in verses that are very elusive and paradoxical. Uh, these contradictions were intended as the student must learn to hold these opposites together in his heart to truly understand the nature of reality. And our constant pursuit of desires kept us from knowing the Tao, which was the unseen, the all-powerful, fundamental source of existence. And this source of our existence could only be found by acting counterintuitively with the rest of the world. While the rest of the world was organizing, planning, and structuring their life, these laws said to rest your mind, to empty your mind of your thoughts by calming the body and practicing the discipline of Wu Wei. Do nothing. <laughs> and in this way, by rooting oneself deeply within the source of all life, one was connected to the fertile void. And with this, accomplished in the individual, contact to that fertile void, everything was effortlessly accomplished in the physical realm. And this was the sage ruler. And you got to think about when they're talking about the sage, this is you in your life. You are the ruler of your kingdoms. You're the king of your life. You're the queen of your life. And so this idea must behave like heaven. When pursuing its own inscrutable ways and following the way things ought to be, not trying to fight against anything, would bring peace to the world. Now, there were three things that Lao Tzu could teach us. That's what he's saying. In chapter 67 of the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu writes, I have three treasures, and I hold on to them and protect them. The first is called compassion. The second is called conservation or simplicity. And the third is called not daring to be ahead in the world. And that's patience. So depending on the translation you read, the three greatest treasures Lao Tzu could teach us is simplicity, patience, and compassion. Simplicity is this idea that when we are simple in our thoughts and actions, we come closer to the source of our own being. Our simple pleasures are usually the ones that bring us the most joy. Patience is this second great treasure. And it's, it's a virtue can, that can be very difficult and challenging to, cu to cultivate. Because when someone provokes us, it can be very easy to react with another attack. And this habitual response becomes an invitation to another act of aggression, and thus the cycle of violence continues. 
And so patience asks you to refrain and absorb hostility. To wait until your mind settles down and the emotions have cleared. And when we are patient with both our friends and our enemies, we are practicing Wu Wei, or do nothing. And we remain in harmony with the way things are. And the third thing, this tr third treasure is compassion. And what this virtual virtue essentially means is that we suffer together. And by identifying sympathetically with the suffering and misfortune of another, combined with a strong desire to help and alleviate the emotional, physical, or spiritual pains of the person or group, we develop empathy or concern for others. And so these were the great teachings that Lao Tzu left us, and these small acts of loving kindness that compassion has and uh, simplicity that allows us to experience those, the true nature of our lives and, and patience, not, not, not overreacting to things that happen, to people that hurt us or people, and, and to situations that aff, uh, affront us. These are the keys to healing our broken world. And as Karen Armstrong points out in the book, in the last sentence of the book, we need to go in search of the lost heart, the spirit of compassion that lies at the core of all our traditions. And I really want you to get that as we're coming closer to the end of the show, that it is that spirit of compassion that underlies all of our traditions that is the secret to bringing all of our cultures and peoples together and healing our deepest wounds. Now, that was happening in China. We're going to touch on what happened in India, the Axial Age of India, which gave rise to modern-day Hinduism and Buddhism. And these mystics and luminaries were pioneers to the, front, to the frontiers of human consciousness. But there is a history to India as well. Now, India was the vanguard of the Axial Age revolution, spiritual revolution. And between 1500 BC and 1000 BC, the Indus Valley had been infiltrated through a series of migrations by the Sanskrit-speaking Aryans, a tribe of people that originated on the Caucasus steppes of southern Russia. Their name meant something like noble or honorable. And before coming to India, they had been shepherds tending flock and living a quiet pastoral life. However, as they started to uh, integrate and meet other uh, civilizations and, and advanced societies, they were uh, introduced to modern technology and weaponry, and some of these Aryans surrendered their peaceful ways and became warriors. And then violence erupted on the steppes, and cattle rustlers were killing and plundering and raping the frightened villagers, and their humble way of life turned upside down. And so the world of the Aryans had suddenly become polarized between, uh, with good fighting evil. And this wave of aggression and unprecedented violence destroyed the peaceful existence on the steppes. And those Aryan cattle rustlers migrated southeast into and would carry this warrior ethos into India. Now, the Aryan immigrants was a dynamic religion. They were cattle rustlers. They worshipped the god Indra who had this wild flowing beard and his passion for battle and was an archetypal warrior god that gave the warring a very sacred dimension. And by making war a sacred experience, 
the Arians were able to feel the rage and the heat and the glory of the God. I mean, it's a demonic frenzy, and anybody who's ever been in battle can, can attest to that, that heat that the warriors feel and were seeking. And this wrath of the young warrior, which manifests itself in extreme heat, is a magical religious experience. I mean, there's nothing profane or natural about it. It is the syndrome of gaining possession of a sacrality. And in order to survive and to conquer, to dominate and subdue the regions, the Aryans turned war into a ritual. And when they fought, they became more than themselves and felt within, felt united with Indra. And these rituals gave their warfare a soul. And by linking their earthly battles with the divine archetype, it made it war holy. So this warrior ethos permeated every layer of their society in violence, unprecedented aggressions, bloody sacrifices, fiercely competitive ritual contests, gory, uh, glory and terror. It was some very, uh, we would be appalled about what they did at this time in this area, were the dominating features of this period of history in this part of India. Now, as the Aryan life became more settled and the economy more agricultural, there was this emerging consensus that the destructive cycle of violence that characterized a society needed to end. And so the priestly class began reforming these rituals and rites and taking out the violence and was moving towards a concept that would become an indispensable virtue of India's axial age. And these ideas, these reformists, were inspired by the concept of ahimsa, which means harmlessness. So the redirection of the spiritual life by these mystics was aimed to, at the discovery of the interior world and the connection to the Atman. And the Atman would refer to the essential and eternal core of the human being, which made him or her unique. You could think of it as the soul. And in one of the uh, Upanishads, uh, the Atman is described as such. Concealed in the heart of all beings lies the Atman, the spirit, the self. Smaller than the smallest atom, greater than the greatest spaces. When by the grace of God man sees the glory of God, he sees him beyond the world of desire, and then sorrows are left behind. Now here we see the idea of waking up to the unknown interior truth, not accessible with the naked eye. The mystics of the Upanishads were discovering through their meditations and reflections a pathway to enlightenment. And by constantly disciplining their senses, speaking the truth at all times, and practicing nonviolence, and behaving with detached equanimity to all, one came to know the Brahman, which is the supreme reality. It was a power higher, deeper, and more fundamental to existence. This was the at the core of the Tao Te Ching, this, this, uh, this eternal thing, this holy one that was behind it, the same thing that was going on in uh, Israel with, the, with God and the move towards monotheism. There's something, the primordial existence. And even in uh, Greece, there was the, they were talking about these things. And this power held the universe together and enabled all things to live. And it could not be described or defined. It was all-encompassing. And it was life itself and was best experienced in total silence. And this is one how one made contact with Brahman.
or God. Now, the Upanishads of the Indian mystics who embarked on the path of inner peace. Now, Upanishad, what that means is to sit down near to. So the seeker was seeking to sit near to God in the ineffable, inscrutable mystery of existence itself. And it was a long and arduous journey to take. Now, the focus of the Upanishads was the Atman, the self, uh, which was identical with the Brahman. You know, if the sage or spiritual seeker could discover the inner heart of his own being, he would automatically enter into the ultimate reality and liberate himself from the terror of mortality. But this liberation was not easy, and one must attach himself from his desires and live a state of non-attachment. So this is similar to what Jesus Christ was talking about when he spoke, be in the world, but not of it. And one of the great mystic sages says, and I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not, I, I won't. He was convinced that there was, as it were, an immortal spark at the core of the human person, which participated in, was of the same nature as the immortal Brahman that sustained and gave life to the entire cosmos. God was an imminent presence and the ultimate reality of every human being. And we could only discover this for ourselves by turning our attention inward. The Atman, which animated our very existence, was the agent of all our senses and even breathed us. This mystics goes on to explain, you can't see the seer who does the seeing. You can't hear the hearer who does the hearing. You can't think with the thinker who does the thinking. And you can't perceive the perceiver who does the perceiving. The self within all, Brahman, is that Atman of yours. So there's so much we can learn from all these different traditions. And the Upanishads were designed to take us beyond the comprehension of the senses of the visible world and into the deeper layers of human consciousness. And by plumbing the mysteries of our own nature, these mystics discovered that we could transcend our world. Now, what does this mean for us? When we expand our conscious awareness of who we really are at the deepest levels of existence, we expand consciousness itself. Brahman is consciousness. And the more we experience the consci- this consciousness, the more aware we become of the consciousness of oneness. As the experience of this becomes more frequent, we draw closer and closer to attaining the bliss of Brahman. Now, hopefully I have a few more minutes with, uh, can I continue going on just for a little bit more? Um, Henry? Can I keep going? Okay, great. I just We're going over time, folks. I just want to make sure that uh, we could finish up today's uh, show because uh, when we're talking about this axial age of this amazing hit period of history, uh, we have to talk, uh, we have to bring up the Buddha. Uh, Buddha was, uh, translates into the idea of the awakened one, uh, the enlightened one. Now, uh, these spiritual mystics and sages and philosophers, they all understood 
They all understood that all life is dukkha. And then this is a central understanding of the core of all of these traditions and all of these areas. And it was dukkha is a concept that all things are temporary. All states are temporary. And therefore, they're unsatisfying. And it's often translated as suffering. See, when we experience a physical world, we, a world that was conditioned by ignorance, sorrow, longing for what was, fear of the unknown, and these brief moments of life where we felt happiness. Yet these moments of happiness were always followed by periods of grief, and nothing seemed to last very long. People died, violence erupted and destroyed an individual's sense of peace and harmony and justice, and kept people in a perpetual state of fear and terror, illness of old age and death, and we're all, and that's all that a person had to look forward to. And this was something that the existential philosophers in the 20th century were examining, like John Paul Sater and Albert Camus and others, this negation, this nihilistic negation of all that is and reducing it to the self. And that, and that life was just painful, unsatisfactory, and meaningless. Like uh, Tom, um, uh, in Beckett's in his play, uh, Waiting for Godot, says that... Uh, um, life gives birth. Uh, I'm sorry here. Um, uh, life gives birth to a stage. It shines for one brief moment and then it's darkness once more. And so this was this feeling that it was pointless to attach ourselves to the things that were ephemeral. And so many of these axial age masters wanted help to us to transcend our suffering and enter into a liberation from the harsh reality of the temporal world. And the Buddha was one of the greatest exemplaries of what human beings could do and achieve. Now, the Buddha was born near Nepal around the 5th century BC uh, to the king Sudohanda of the Shakaya clan and his wife Maya, the queen. And he was born into the Kasitras, which was, and was given, which was the warrior class, and he was given the name Siddhartha, which means he who achieves his aim. And it was foretold by seers, whom the king had called upon to, to talk about his son and to tell him this fortune, that his son would either become a great, a great king or a great holy man. And his father envisioned for his son worldly ambitions, and so he shielded him for anything that would de deter him away from being a king and seeing the sufferings afflicted on human life. And so the king separated Siddhartha, filled him with luxury and opulence, built him his own palace, and had a sensual world of pleasures. And at 16 years old, 16 years old Siddhartha married and eventually had a son. All the worldly pleasures were at his feet. And Gautama's pleasure palace is a striking image of the mind in denial. Now think about it in your life. It's your mind in denial. As long as we persist in closing our hearts to the sorrow that surrounds us on all sides, we remain incapable of growth and insight. So when Siddhartha was 29 years old, he was restless. He decided to venture out into the, outside the palace to see his subjects. And when he stepped outside the walls enclosed in his pleasure sanctuary, he was shocked to see the harsh realities of the human condition. He came across an old man. He'd never seen an old man before. The charioteer explained to him how all of us face this fate. 
and he was deeply disturbed. And so Siddhartha ventured outside the palace more frequently, and on these succeeding visitations, he came face to face with a diseased man, a decaying corpse, and an ascetic. And he learned that the ascetic had renounced the world to seek an end to his personal suffering and fear of death. And so Siddhartha, so overcome by all that he had seen, left his kingdom, left his wife and his son to find a way to release humanity from dukkha, from universal suffering, aging, sickness, and death. As with Siddhartha, we can see ourselves in the same light. Once the suffering that is an inescapable part of the human condition has broken through the cautionary barricades that we have erected against it, we can never see the world the same way again. So Guantanamo is trying to seek this blissful state, this liberation called nirvana, which translates from the Sanskrit as a blowing out. And the idea behind this is by extinguishing the self and all the passions and all the desires that locked him into the conditional, corrupted, and ephemeral world, all pain and suffering would be transcended. One could then exist in the unborn, ageless, incorruptible, and griefless state of our true existence. Now, this quest was for a fully awakened consciousness within the individual that transcended his mortal limitations in this physical world and would unite him with the true reality of the cosmos. And so Siddhartha, for six years, lived this ascetic life. He studied and mastered a number of practices, but he never, he never really felt satisfied with any of, his, of the interpretations. And later, after his enlightenment, and when he began his teachings, he would tell his followers, don't blindly follow anyone's teachings. No matter how venerable they may be, if those teachings did not tally with their own experience. The Buddha wanted you to find nirvana for yourselves. And that only you, only you can do it. No one saves us but ourselves. You've got to walk the path. No one can and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. After... Pushing himself, Siddhartha, to extreme austerity in the ascetic life, Siddhartha came to the conclusion that his extremism was not helping him to achieve his goal. He realized that his spiritual quest required more of a balance, a path of balance that was appropriate to follow, and he called this the middle way. And while contemplating the middle way, Siddhartha sat under the Bodhi tree and vowed not to leave until he had found the answers to the questions he was seeking. And after sitting there for several days and emptying and purifying his mind, battling with his inner and outer demons, the truths to the questions of suffering finally came. And in that moment, he attained pure enlightenment. And henceforward, he would be known as the Buddha, or he who is awake. Now, his contribution, one of the, well, he obviously contributed, he was enlightened, uh, contributed, the, but one of the things was the practice of a form of mindfulness in which he scrutinized his behavior at every moment of the day, Nothing the, noting the ebb and flow of his feelings and sensations, 
together with the fluctuations of his consciousness and making himself aware of the constant stream of desires, irritations, and ideas that coursed his mind in a space of a single hour. And the reason he did this was to become acquainted with how his mind worked, how his body worked, so that he could learn how to master himself. And he observed that it wasn't just old age and sickness and death that caused suffering, but also pain, grief, despair, lying, betrayals, being told one thing and doing another, being close to what we hate and distant from one we love, or not getting what we want. He observed how one craving led to another and how he was never satisfied with who he was. And there was this constant yearning inside of him to do something, become something, and get something that he felt he needed. And this restlessness of his mind and the body led to suffering. And in this world predicated on change, change is one of the laws of the, of the universe. If we were caught in this endless cycle of desires, our sufferings would never end. And so at the same time, he contemplated the negative truths about life. The Buddha fostered a mindfulness practice to free himself from hatred, from the pain, from the grief, and all the suffering by infusing his mind with thoughts full of compassion, desiring the welfare of all living beings. He systematically banished one thought after the other, and the more he did this, the calmer his mind became. And with consistency, discipline, and determination, mindfulness would transform the individual, uh, individual away from the cravings and the desires and the selfishness of the ego and lift the aspirant to acquire a level of compassion. There's that word again, compassion, that connects him to his humanity. Now, his meditations were called the immeasurables and were designed to open up the individual to his whole being and to transcend our egos, extend benevolence to all human beings and creatures, and direct our intentions to all corners of the world and engage in the undifferentiated expression of unconditional love, our minds would eventually break free from its self-preoccupation and feel expansive, without limits, enhanced, without hatred or petty malevolence. This was how an individual could achieve nirvana. And it wasn't something that would happen overnight. But with skill and discipline and practice and self-forgiveness, mindfulness achieves this by slow degrees. Enlightenment and the ultimate truth of reality, as the Buddha discovered, comes to us when we commit ourselves to going all the way on our spiritual journeys. What an amazing time, period, in our human history where all these amazing sages and spiritual masters and philosophers and, and playwrights and, and prophets that brought humanity from one state of consciousness to another, that were tapping into the true essence and the existence of reality, that were understanding that the temple within is where our re true reality lies, 
that we must go through our suffering in order to achieve enlightenment, that if we suffer together, we share it together, and that by that purging through that grief, we, we communally, we unite one another and see that we have much more in common. And I think hopefully that you got from this, uh, from the council today, that underlying all of them, all of these regions and all of these traditions is this sense of, this ethos of love and compassion. And that is the centerpiece of all of them. And if we could all unite there, we could solve our problems like that. Well, thank you. I know I've gone over today. And uh, I appreciate all of you who are tuning in from all over the world. Uh, we are broadcasting live on KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com. I want to thank again this station for hosting me, for providing all the resource and availability to be able to Speak to all of you. We are reaching on this show almost um, 55,000 people from all around the world. And it is such an honor and a blessing to be able to speak to all of you and to uh, uh, share uh, some of the things that I've learned along the way. Um, next week, we have a wonderful guest. And I, I can't wait to have this guest uh, on the show. Uh, we are going to be talking about the Native American traditions and healing traditions. Uh, his name is Miguel Rivera, and we're going to be talking about a return to the earth and looking at the Native traditional practices and uh, invoking them here in the studio and to you out there. All right, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. May you be well. May you be whole. May you be free of suffering. Thank you for tuning into the council. I'm Charlie Pacello, and we'll be back next week. So tune in. Looking forward to seeing you all again. God bless. The council is adjourned. Have a wonderful weekend, folks. Well, folks, I hope uh, I'm so grateful again that you were on here and uh, that you got something uh, meaningful out of this uh, out of this show today to connect you to a deeper context to help you understand uh, some of the underlying dynamics of uh, all the different uh, philosophical and religious traditions that we have today and where it came from and maybe give you a piece that you can connect with and bring more compassion and understanding in your lives. Uh, so that you can carry it forward to wherever you're going, to whoever you may meet. It's a ripple effect that, get, that carries out. And once we drop that pebble, it spreads. And uh, um, hopefully we continue to make this, this um, sharing these, this wisdom uh, and passing it along to all those we meet. All right, folks, we'll see you again very soon. See you next week. Be here again on the council. There's only so much.